And you're very welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast ahead of the opening weekend of the Six Nations Championship. Delighted to say we have Bernard Jackman, Donald Lennon and Wes Liddy uh, with me for the next hour or so. You're all very welcome, gentlemen. I suppose this time of year, Donald, uh, we all should be getting very excited about the Six Nations Championship. There's no crowds, as we know, this year, but nonetheless, I presume you're looking forward to the championship. You know, sport has been fantastic. We had, you know, the, the GA kept us going during the autumn. Um, but look, Six Nations is always special. I always love the Six Nations. Come back to Five Nations. Uh, I can go back to watching it as a young boy in, in black and white on the television when the, 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 the grainy pictures were coming in from Cardiff. So um, uh, it's just a special competition. And I think, uh, you know, it's interesting when you, you listen to a lot of the Southern Hemisphere players who, uh, you know, they played for New Zealand or Australia, South Africa. Uh, they've seen the Six Nations from a distance, but they don't really get it until such time as they actually come up here and start playing with clubs in, in be it in England, Ireland or France. And then they go to a Six Nations game and they understand the whole buzz around the thing, the history and the tradition. Um, so it is, it, it's a special tournament. And, um, you know, in times like this, uh, you know, I, I look, you have the, the lockdown day, 4th of March, nobody knows what's going to happen. I mean, in my old selfish world, uh, I'm quite busy with the Six Nations coming along and the last weekend is, is 20th of March. So I see the Six Nations as a, a means of getting to the next stage with a lot of entertainment. Uh, I'll be lucky enough to be at the some of the matches, certainly the Ireland games in the Aviva Stadium. Uh, two cracking games as well, France and England. They won't be like other years, of course, uh, with 50,000 plus supporters. But um, yeah, look, that's what makes it special and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Bernard, I, I don't know, I, you know, obviously, as Donald said, he's right, it's, it's something we look forward to every year, but I don't know, is there the usual optimism around the Championship this year, just because from an Irish context, I guess things have been a little bit up in the air, and the pandemic as well, is there the same enthusiasm you think for the rugby this year? Look, I don't think there is, there's not the same build-up, I mean, ordinarily, you know, when you're out and about, you'll be hearing people talking about... Um, you know, when are you flying to Cardiff? Where are we meeting up? Um, and all that social side that goes with the Six Nations, which is a huge part of it, let's be honest. Or, um, but I think as we, over the next couple of days, as the teams are announced, um, I, I, and Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon, people will be getting excited listening to it on the radio or watching on TV. And um, it'll pick up momentum for sure. I think everyone appreciates how how lucky we are to have pro sport. And um, yeah, it's not the same, obviously the same level of enthusiasm. Obviously, we're not really sure where we are as a team in Ireland. Um, I think there's not huge levels of optimism. Um, but still, once the tournament starts, I think it'll it'll build momentum. And, and hopefully for us, it's, it's positive momentum with on the back of a really good start against Wales. What about you, Wes? You don't look forward to anything. Do you look forward to the Six Nations Championship? Or how you feel? I look forward to hearing from you every week on this podcast too. But um, other, other than that, look, I am looking forward to it. I think there's, I think obviously the no crowds and what Bert said, the kind of the cramping of the social component of it's a massive thing. And the weekends away are, are a huge part of it for the supporters. But um, equally, I think there's a big opportunity, especially here in Ireland and that, like I suppose when the, when the Nations Cup was on in November, the, the GA Championships were in full swing and probably took more of the public attention, whereas there's kind of a clear run at this and, and something for the whole country to get behind. And I suppose this new management under Andy Farrell, they haven't really, the team hasn't really formed an identity in a lot of ways. We don't know what to expect from them. And you're hoping that they kind of can go out and express themselves and the country kind of rolls in behind them over the next couple of months. What's a, a reasonable return, Donald, for Ireland and Andy Farrell in this championship, do you think? Uh, well, you're certainly, you know, you look at, at Italy, Wales and Scotland, you'll be looking to win those games. Uh, you have France and England in Dublin. I think it's it's unrealistic that, uh, or I can't see Ireland sort of winning five, winning a Grand Slam. Um, but like, if you could beat one of those in Dublin, then I think that's a really good championship. Um you know, I think you want to see evidence that the team is building a style and that they are, you see inc incremental improvements, let's say, from the autumn. Uh, as, as Hugh has said, it's, it's been a very fractured time since Andy Farrell has come in. Uh, you know, he, he's operating in a totally different environment to what you normally expect in international camp. Uh, but it's the same for everybody. And, uh, you know, that's become the norm now and you have to move on. So, 
Yeah, look, I think it's, um, you know, Ireland, uh, they, they've been top half of the table for a long time now. I think uh, least best is probably finishing third in the championship, which is, I think, right now where I'd expect them to finish. But uh, yeah, even having said that, and I know we'll be going on to talk about the Wales game specifically, it is, uh, I think, a little bit uh, more challenging game next Sunday than a lot of people seem to think. Yeah, and just on the overall expectation, Bernard, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, a couple of seasons ago, we would have been going into this championship fully hoping and expecting maybe to win it. Um, we've had to kind of maybe readjust our expectations, I think, in the last year and a half or so. Yeah, I do. I think um, I think England have, have really kicked on and, and France, um, after probably a decade of, of chaotic selection, you know, playing without any real game plan, um, they seem to be much more switched on and have uncovered uh, a new generation of players who have no fear and are able to um, bring consistency in, a, in an international jersey. So I think, look, at, I think the realists would say that uh, on form or in terms of squad depth, um, England and France are a little bit ahead of us at the moment. And for us to be able to beat them, and we're well capable of being able to beat them, um, we probably just need to have, you know, real... Uh, cohesion and imp implement a game plan or our way of playing um, at a very high level and obviously with both of them coming to Dublin normally that's a great chance to, to win but I think the lack of a home crowd you know it will be a disadvantage for us when we play the, the two big teams England and France but also an advantage for us in terms of going to Cardiff and, and, and Edinburgh which is haven't always been favourable well, Cardiff hasn't always been an easy place to go for us so um, yeah I, look at I, I we also have a very experienced squad, so you know I think eleven over eleven of our squad are over thirty. Um, so they do know how to perform in big games, and potentially you know they will they will lock in now for the Six Nations and and get back to the levels that we know they can play at and and start to create the identity that Wesley spoke about that we're probably just not sure about at the moment. Yeah, I Wes, I was going through obviously the, the fixture list, and I, I said I well, obviously highlight England and France at home as massive games, but I, I said to myself, hang on a second here. We go to Wales this weekend and we don't come back with a win. And the pressure on Andy Farrell is absolutely huge after the first weekend. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, they're nearly, bar the Italy one, they're nearly all kind of games that could potentially go either way. You probably fancy yourself as being a little better than Scotland and Wales, but, you know, it being in a way a fixture kind of mitigates against that. But we, we don't really know if a home advantage is going to play any part this season either. And, Equally, France and England are ahead of us, but you know, with them, with them coming to Dublin, it, it, it's certainly not a hopeless cause. So, like, it's a funny one. You look at the the fixture calendar and you look at the the talent in the team, and you're kind of thinking, geez, if we get you know some momentum going, maybe we can at least be in contention towards the latter end of the season. But as you say, the the ulterior to that is that you lose one, and it can kind of snowball in the opposite direction. And like, I think there's there's definitely a few concerns in terms of there's a lot of guys that really aren't up to speed match fitness wise heading into this first weekend. And because of that, I think there's, there, there's possibly, and with, with Doris pulling out as well, there, there's possibly more uh, positions up for grabs than we're used to heading into the start of the six nations. But, you know, that's not a bad thing. We're talking about, you know, teams being picked on form and all that, but there's kind of, you know, if you look through the team, Conway, Lowe, Ringrose, Henshaw, Tyke Furlong, obviously, Ian Henderson, there's a lot of guys that haven't played a, a lot of rugby in what's already a fractured season. So is it realistic to expect us to kind of go from where we were last November without any real preparation time and to be much improved? It's probably unlikely, you'd have to think, if you were to look at it logically. So there's pressure on Ireland, Donald, going into this. There's pressure on Wales, you know, Wayne Pivak as well. He hasn't had the easiest starts. So you have two coaches with two sets of squads going into this game where really they'll be going hell for leather to try and win just in the opening weekend of the Six Nations Championship. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, we all know what rugby's like in Wales. It's, um, you know, it's their national game. People live, breathe the sport and uh, the, the mood of the nation is set by the performance of uh, the rugby team on a Saturday. Uh, Wayne Pivak, uh, I, like I've spoken to Warren Gatland about this in the past and that sort of the glass bowl that is Welsh rugby. It's brilliant when you're performing. But when you're not, it can be a very lonely place. And I think uh, it's been a difficult place for Wayne Pivak. He came in last year uh, on the back of Wales finishing 
uh, semi-finalists in the World Cup. Uh, had a fantastic tournament given the players that they have and we always knew that Gatland uh, and his combination of coaches were able to get the maximum out of the players they had. Uh, I think Pivac came in. We all know he's an excellent coach. He did a brilliant job with the Scarlets. Uh, the team that he had that beat Leinster in a final, remember, in a Pro 12, I think it was at the time, played fantastic rugby. But, um, you know, having this dream that you're able to immediately transfer that style of play into the international arena, it just hasn't worked. Uh, the pressure is on big time in Wales. They've only won three of, of the 10 games under PVAC, two of those against Wales, one against Georgia. So this is a defining game for this Welsh team. I think, you know, there's a lot of emotional energy being used in, in Wales at the moment, uh, an admission almost by PVAC that he needs to go back to basics a little bit more. And, you know, I think bringing Dan Lydiot back into the squad is a sign of that. Uh, I think from the autumn, you people like uh, Ken Owens are going to be back in the frame again. He'll make a huge difference, uh, especially to their set piece. And they're back in the, in well, the Principality Stadium as it is now, which is, even though there's no people there and, you know, the Welsh probably feed off their fans more than anyone, but with due respects to Parky Scarlets, you know, trying to put on a veil, that, that's where they play their games in the autumn. Uh, it's just not the same as playing in the national stadium. So I think Wales will play on all these things during the week. And I think you're going to see a, a physical and an emotional response from Wales that makes them very dangerous, even despite the fact that they won't have their usual 75,000 in the stadium. So Ireland are going to have to be up for this, Bernard. Like, there's no, there's no time to hit the ground, if you like. They have to literally, from the first step here, uh, take the fight to Wales and put in a performance to get over the line and win this match. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I agree with Donal. I think I would expect a backlash from Wales. Um, they got a couple of, of wins in Italy and Georgia. Um, you know, and the, the content wasn't probably as, as pleasing as they would want. But they, given the, the results up till then, I think that'll settle them a little bit. Obviously, they made a change in terms of their defence coach. Um, Byron Haywood has has left, and and uh, um, you know they brought in get up or brought in getting Jenkins as a, a temporary uh, defence coach at the moment. But he's implemented the Sean Edwards. You know he 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 believes in the Sean Edwards model. Um, the model they were using before that was was more of a drift defence, which. Um, wasn't really working. They, they were quite poor st- defensively. So, and we've always struggled against that. I mean, we're talking about Ireland trying to find an identity. We're hearing about this evolving attacking game. Well, you know, the Sean Edwards type defence is 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 not really the defence that 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 tends to suit us in terms of uh, attacking. So it's going to take a lot of good game management from from Murray and Sexton to make sure that we we don't give them energy by playing into that into that hard hard edge defense and um yeah and they have you know they have a lot of quality players who who will want to basically you know beat Ireland for sure get a start at six nations and I think I agree with Don I think it will be very hard for them given the high of getting to a world cup semi-final given all the problems that are happening in Welsh rugby with pay cuts with salary banding with um you know all that intellectual property of Gatland Howley Sean Edwards Rob McBride leaving at the same time, uh, going not playing in your home stadium, um, a little bit of friction in terms of where the team is going, um, a lot of change at the same time. But I think that look at they're into they re, players realise now from a personal point of view as well. I mean, this is potentially a lines, it's a lot of lines tests up for grabs or, or spots in the squad in how they perform. And I, I could see them really focusing for this Six Nations. And when you look at the quality they have. In terms of you know, like the George North back to form, etc., they are they are a team who could beat us for sure, you know. And uh, um, do you still think they have the that capability, Birch, to to under Gatland? They could always you know, the sum of the region's yeah. parts um, outperform that when they came together under the Wales blanket, if you like. Do you still think they're capable of doing that? Yeah, I think a big part of that was the fact that, and then this this sounds maybe stupid and maybe the stupid, but I'll tell you the reason behind it. Um, they didn't have to go to the well emotionally as often as, as as Irish players. So when you play Leinster against Munster, you know it's a it's a huge game. When you play in the knockout stages of of Europe, it's it, they're huge games. Um, when you play in the knockout in the semi final final of the Pro 14, they're big games. Whereas the Welsh teams and Welsh players very rarely have had to do that. The Scarlets, the you know when they won the the Pro 14, but they're very rarely in the knockout stages of Europe. 
when they play for their home provinces, regions, you know, there's no crowds. The crowds are tiny. Um, there's not real pressure on. And then suddenly you go into Welsh camp and for that six, seven week block, it's absolutely massive. I mean, it's hard to like, you know, we, we love our rugby here. Um, but over there, I mean, when Wales are playing, it just unites. Uh, well, it doesn't actually unite them. They, there's lots of arguments, but they're all passionate about, about Team Wales. So I think for the squad and the players in it, it's another step up emotionally. And usually, you know, they, they feed off the crowd as well in, in terms of, you know, a full a full Millennium Stadium. But um, I do expect these these players, the biggers, the, um, um, you know, the, the Alan Wins, the Falatows, the George Norths, the Tipperick's, etc., Ken Owens to, you know, really be able to get that extra 10% out of themselves in this tournament. And, and that could that could change the picture massively. Okay, right. So let's focus on Ireland then uh, this week, uh, if we can. And I guess what Andy Farrell might do. Um, Wes, what kind of a team are you expecting him to put out? We know, obviously, um, Doris has gone. So the back row will be different from the last time we saw Ireland. There are options here. You could move Peter Manny to six. You could bring in... You know, Van der Fleer or Connors at seven there. You could put CJ Stander back to number eight. Um, you could bring Jack Cohn in. What, what do you see as the most likely option in the back row for Andy Farrell? I suppose, as Birch was saying last week, um, possibly the selection of Ty Byrne in the second row could, can answer some of that question as well in terms of the threat you have over the ball. The, um, I suppose Connors and, and Van der Fleer are kind of more established under Andy Farrell than say Rhys Ruddock is but you know moving Peter back to six and, and kind of downsizing again at seven maybe um, possibly is you know is quite counterintuitive to what they've done so far so so maybe there's an option for uh, for Rhys Ruddock to come straight in at six potentially um, and I think equally the front row is, is curious in terms of um you know, he, surely he's not going to go with Ty Furlong straight away, but he does have that 40 minutes under his belt now. And, you know, the, the idea of, of Porter and Kilcoyne, or Furlong and Kilcoyne, being in reserve um, is, is a very strong impact off the bench. But, again, as I said earlier, I mean, of those three names it, we just named in, in the, as props, two of them have played, you know, 40 minutes in, in the last number of months. So, there's kind of opportunities and there's risks there at the same time. Um, I think the back line is kind of, until you get to the back three, kind of picks itself. And Stockdale's injury of fullbacks probably made sure Keenan will start there. And, and, and you probably have a decision to make between Larmer and Lowe on, on one of the wings. But I, I think it's second row, back row and tight head are, are probably the main conversation points. Would you start Tyke Furlong, Donald, given he's only played 40 minutes of rugby? I've been thinking about this, and uh, I, I tell you, it's it's a huge risk, no matter what you do, because like logic would dictate that, given Tiger's only played 40 minutes, I think since 23rd of February last year, uh, you'd say you can't start him, so you put him on the bench. You start Andrew Porter, but I'll give you the scenario then. What happens? Porter gets injured after five minutes. Furlong now has to come on and play 75 minutes, and you know that's not beyond the realms of possibility. I think it actually happened the other way around against Wales, was it two or three years ago, when uh, Furlong went off after five minutes and Porter came on. So um, in the ideal scenario, as I say, you, you'd be keeping Furlong in reserve, uh, start Porter and uh, bring Tyg on for the last 20, 25 minutes. Um, but as I say, the risk with that is, is if Porter gets injured. So uh, it's always a conundrum when you're picking a bench. You, you look at all the what-if scenarios, um, and no matter what, you know, most of the time, and now with, with eight subs, you should be well covered in every position. But the difficulty is when you have a number of players, as Ireland have at the moment, who don't have huge game time uh, under their belt, then you do leave yourself slightly vulnerable. So, um, as I say, ideally, I'd start Porter, hope he doesn't get injured in the opening half and keep Furlong in reserve. Um, otherwise, I think it's, it's, it's a huge ask. Do you think Reese Ruddock will come straight into the back row, um, given he's played so well for Leinster and there is like a bit of a clamour for him to, to, to see game time this championship? Yeah, there, there is, but you've got to look at it from the point of view of, of Andy Farrell. Uh, he didn't include Ruddock in the 
November series. Um, so does he go from being outside of the 35 or the 40 to leapfrog everyone straight into the team? Um, you know, I'm a massive fan of, of Rhys Ruddock, always have been. He's never left Ireland down. I remember him coming in in the morning of a South Africa game a number of years ago, and he actually played seven, and he had an outstanding game. Um, so he has that in his armory. Um, but I think, firstly, I think the loss of Caelan Doris is absolutely huge. He's different to the other back rows in that he has this unbelievable ability of, um, you know, great power in the tackle. He always gets over the gain line. He has the capacity as well. He's brilliant hands to, to play as a second receiver. Um, he just, like you heard Paul O'Connell talking about him yesterday, he has X factor, X factor for a forward. You don't often hear that, but I think O'Connell is right. Um, so, Doris, that is a huge blow. Uh, so, therefore, now you're going to look at your back row. Um, and I think uh, they had come into this campaign with the idea of, of Peter Romani playing seven, where he's played brilliantly for both Ireland and Munster over the past number of months. So I believe in him there. Uh, I think I, you would then put Stander at eight. So you have a choice to make it six. Uh, funny enough, I was just looking at some of the clips from training yesterday and it looked as if Ian Henderson seemed to be involved in the line-out set-up. Now, I know they'd be changing players in and out. Uh, Ireland were... were I think, involved in a game, a control game against uh, Ulster earlier on in the week. Um, so if Henderson is match fit, you then have the option of picking him in the second row and putting Byrne on the blind side. Um, so that covers the physicality. You're bringing more, more physical presence, if you like, in. Um, and bear in mind that Wales may go back uh, to the past and start with a back row of Lydia Falato, who's way fitter now than he was in the November series. And Tipperick at seven. So, um, you know, it's unfortunately the modern game, it's a power game, it's all about physicality. So, I think um, um, they're the options that they'll look at. Um, okay. Certainly, they're the ones that I would look at at, at coming in. But, but all these things, and Birch would appreciate this, a lot of those selections come down, those 50 50 calls, and it'll be the same in the back three, particularly for one of the wing spots. And we can talk about that later. How are fellas performing in training? Who is showing the spark? And, you know, that. so therefore it's, it's difficult from the outside when you're talking about those marginal calls because a lot of that is, it's a, you actually wait until you see how fellas are training and what's happened during the day in your sessions before you, you make up your mind fully. And presumably Birch Paul O'Connell has a, a big role to play in, in, in advising Andy Farrell about the starting makeup of the pack. What do you think he's been doing with the squad over the last couple of weeks? And do you think he can fix the problems that we saw set piece in particular in the short amount of time that he's had? Well, if, if Paul has the same selection, um, it's not hard to, uh, to, it's hard to believe you wouldn't be looking for Ty Byrne at six um, and Henderson, Henderson and James Ryan with Peter Manny at seven. That'd be a, 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 you know, a phenomenal attacking line out. Um, and also defensive line-out. And that's obviously one of the areas that Paul is going to be measured. So that's always the case. I mean, no more than John Fogarty will be pushing for the best scrummage and props. And and, and, and Simon needs to be pushing for the best defensive players. And it's up to Farrell to to listen to all the, the different cases that are being made and, and, and try and pick the best combination. But look, there'll definitely there'll be huge focus on our, on our line-out, our, our line-out calling. Um, I, I heard Ian Henderson say in a podcast a couple of weeks ago that... Paul was ringing them two or three times a week, you know, uh, sending them clips, just getting them ready for, for going into camp. And I'm sure he was doing the same to, you know, with the other locks as well. And that's that's probably something we've lacked a little bit. It's just a, a real understanding of, um, of of where the opportunities are, where the space is, and, and trying to predict what the defence are going to do. So um, I think there'll be a big focus on that. Our line-up mall, you know, I was critical of, of some of our decision-making in the Autumn Cup where... You know, we just need to kick to the corner out of habit without having shown real sophistication or, or strength in our in our lineup mall, which had been a big strength for Ireland. So, um, and Paul is very detailed on that. So, you know, um, we may we may be able to take advantage of of kicking to the kicking to the corner and being able to score from it in in the Six Nations. That's that's massive where there's very little between teams. But um, and also the breakdown. I mean, he's he's in charge of the breakdown now and. Um, by all accounts, he's a disciple of the the Joe Schmidt uh, philosophy at, at the breakdown, which you know did give us quality ball and, and made us very hard to to get the ball back off, and that hasn't been the case in the last 
in the last year and a half. Um, and to be honest, probably Joe's last year as well, we, we weren't as accurate there as we, we would like. So probably his ability to influence um, our performance there could could have a huge impact on our attack as well. So I look at it, it's not going to be fixed overnight, but um, I think that we will see uh, a real focus in those areas and hopefully you know it, it, it pays off and we see some see some gains. Well, let's listen to the man himself, Paul O'Connell, new Ireland Forwards coach. Of course, he's been chatting to our colleagues, Michael Corcoran and Jackie Hurley. First up, Michael asked him about coming into the national team itself and how that all came about. Yeah, well, look, I, I'd be in contact with Andy. I, I was in the camp last year. Uh, I'd be in contact with Simon and a few of the other coaches as well. Um, so Andy asked me after the Autumn Nations would I be interested in getting involved. Um, I took a few weeks to think about it and... and decided it, it was the right thing for me to do you know I I feel I can offer value I, I have an awful lot to learn certainly as a coach but I felt uh, you know I could immediately offer value to the coaching staff and to the players um, and it's a great opportunity I think international coaching is it's very different you know you get that development opportunity you get a chance to reflect you get a chance to improve uh, during the times where you're not coaching and you're not stuck in a tournament, but when you're in the middle of a tournament, it's full on. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose the big reason is uh, you know I felt I could offer value. My, I suppose my recent connection to playing is is you know you could say it's a weakness, but it's I think it's a bit of a strength as well. You're you're, you're still clued into what a player feels and how a player learns and how hard it can be to learn at times and to change a habit. So, um, so that was it. I mean, I, I was excited the minute he rang me, um, and I think he's got a really good environment here. The players enjoy it incredibly. They're very, um, I suppose, a very collaborative approach, which I would have seen when I was in with them last year, and whenever I speak to the players, whenever I've met them. So, it's a great environment to enjoy, to, to join, and and it ex- the, the opportunity excited me. I would imagine, from your point of view, it's a very much a hands-on role. I mean, I saw some of the footage of the game that they had against Ulster. Um, you know, you had a whistle in one hand, had in your head to stay warm. It looked as if you were very much kind of involved in the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's very collaborative. It's amazing how much coaching the players actually do themselves, um, how, how educated they are on what's happening, uh, you know, on opposition, on what's happening in the world of rugby, what what we need to do and how we have to deliver it. Um, so that's very enjoyable for me, but it's also a challenge for me. You know, you want to be in there running the whole show, but, um, you know, Andy has us questioning the players, checking for understanding all the time. And, you know, when players understand something, they have a better chance of delivering it physically. And uh, and that's something he's big into. But, yeah, I suppose, look, forwards coaching and, and the way... Andy does things. Everyone is hands-on, um, so you have to be in in the middle of it. One of the questions, Paul, that I would have had is obviously you've been in there before, um, you know, but obviously coming back in a formal role. How different is it, and are there difficulties in coaching lads who you would have played? Because obviously there's so plenty of them. Around. I I would hope not. I'm sure there will be challenges down the line when you have to have difficult conversations with people, but. You know, Andy's said over and over again, players just want you to be honest with them. Um, and, and if you're wrong, hold your hand up. And uh, that's what I intend to do. I don't ten, intend to to take a, a, you know, a big coach-player relationship with them. You know, I intend to deliver them as much honest feedback as I can. I intend to try and improve them as players as much as I can. Um, and I have to be myself in delivering that. Um you know, and not try to be something else to them. You know, some of these guys I've known for a long time. Some of these guys are, go- are good friends of mine. Um, but I just have to be honest with them, straight up with them, positively constructive with them, um, and and that should maintain the relationship. The other question, Paul, is around the environment. You mentioned it there and just how it's evolved. What are the differences that you see between how Andy is running things versus how Joe would have run things when you were in there? Well, I suppose we're in the HPC now, and that has actually made a, a big change to it because, you know, you've pitch side televisions uh, in the indoor uh, in the indoor pitch here. You've 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 TVs in the gym. Um, 
So you're able to have these mini meetings, these uh, short meetings where you go from a meeting to a little bit of technical work back to a meeting to a little bit of technical work. So it was there was going to be a natural change anyway from when Joe finished um, to 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 when Andy took over. Um, I suppose you know when, when we had meetings with Joe, he was he, he loved the meeting. You know he was he was box office when he delivered. And he was always trying to keep everything under 30 minutes. So there wasn't a lot of questions. But I always enjoyed then debating things after the meeting with him. Um, um, and I never felt like I couldn't question him or argue with him. Um, and I loved his environment. And it's, it's probably just similar here. It's probably shorter meetings because there's more time for questioning. And in fairness, the question that... Tom O'Toole asks in a meeting today and the answer he gets is probably a question that seven or eight people should be asking as well so it's probably good that we have those discussions and debates and that's the way players learn now you know they, they, they it isn't about long meetings you know it's short sharp meetings they watch things on their phone um, you know you can send them things on their phone that wasn't there towards the end of my time when I retired it was you know, we were into a meeting, we were into the group, we had a meeting, it was generally a half an hour long, um, and then the questioning would happen afterwards over dinner, over lunch, or whatever that was. So it's different here, and it's more... It, look, I think the Crusaders have been very good at it from when you chat to Rod. It's collaborative, trying to get players to coach, trying to get them to own what they're doing. You know, if someone can coach something, explain it really well to someone else, they know what they're doing. Uh, and it's a great way to, to check for their learning and their understanding. So that's Paul O'Connell there. I mean, this could be a masterstroke by Andy Farrell, Wes. I mean, if Paul O'Connell fixes the line out, if the breakdown is sorted out and we've, you know, quicker up ball on our side and equally protected it when we do have it, um, it could be a masterstroke. Could. Um, could be something else either. Um, <laughs> you know, like, what do we know about Paul O'Connell? Um, as a coach, not a lot. Yeah, the one, a few months spell with Stade Francais. He had a little bit of time with the Irish under-20s. Um, what do we know about him as, as a person? We know he's huge work ethic. We know he's intelligent. We know he's an inspirational character from his playing days. And so the portents are obviously all good that he has the, the requisite skills. But, you know, there's still an element of, of hope in that. And um, equally, a, a cynic could probably point to the fact that um, it was a very high-profile appointment at a time when when people were under pressure, and and you know it it didn't hurt uh, in a PR sense either to wheel out a name like that. So that stick is going to be there waiting um, to beat people with in the case that things don't go as well as we'd like as well. Um, I, I was I was just interested in what what Birch said there when he said that you know Paul would be fighting for the best line-out forward, Simon for the best defensive players, etc. And I suppose I, I was just curious, do, does that actually happen a lot? And does it happen because that's the prism those guys see the game through? Or or is it actually a selfish thing that they want the stats in their particular area to be as good as possible? Oh, I think, yeah, obviously, if you have a selection meeting, which, which they will have, um, and there's not just those coaches involved, there's potentially medics involved or SNC, and particularly with someone coming back from, from injury like Tyke Furlong, they'll, they'll want that opinion on what are the risks. But yeah, I think you have to put your, and it's not totally selfish around all. Oh, I want to have 100% line out stats. It's, it's basically being able to say, look at, you know, there's going to be a lot of kicks to touch because um, Wales kick it out. We're going to have a lot of line out opportunities in, that, in, the, in the attacking half. It's more important this week we, we go with a stronger line-out selection. Likewise, you know, Wales are going to have the conundrum around, you know, Jake Ball starting or off the bench with, with Adam Beard. And, and, you know, John Humphreys, who's the forwards coach, will have to give his opinion. And Wayne Payback will have to, um, you know, decide where, where he goes. But I think those those conversations held on a, on a Sunday night um, are invaluable, you know, invaluable for everybody in the coaching staff to understand um, – everyone else's point of view and to, to try and come up with the best possible compromise. And there's always an element of compromise, but the, yeah, I think with Andy Farrell, particularly his character, um, those conversations, like, I think he, he's not a dictator and, and I think he will lean on his support staff to come up with selection. Whereas, you know, there's, there's plenty, you know, there's plenty of other coaches who will just basically give the team to the coaches and say, look, at, 
go prep them this week, you know. So, uh, but I, I think in Ireland for sure, um, it's a, it's it's definitely a, a shared responsibility. Donald, like yeah, in, in you're, you're, sorry, uh, just on the question, Wes, you better believe every individual coach is fighting for his man in there. I mean, I, I, I've seen this firsthand yeah. over the years. I remember uh, no, in the Lions on, on what basis are they fighting, though? Is it is it as simple as Paul going, well, I want my line out to be 100% and I'm going and to it, actually it, put forward someone, even if he's not the best for the team overall, because he's the best for me? Well... Everybody is, is conscious of their own area of responsibility. As I say, I remember being in a Lions context. Phil Larder was, was the defence coach. And like I'm going back now when, you know, the rugby league influence was just starting in terms of, um, of that organised defence. And certainly England would have been two or three years ahead of, say, Ireland, Scotland, the Wales. I'm going back to the early 2000s here now. Um, but I used to... Every selection meeting, every player who was knocked was the fellow who missed a marginal tackle in training or everything was based for him on who was the best defender, who could understand his system best, not who was the best player in the overall context or in an attacking um, context. Uh, I remember an early discussion on the Lions tour surrounding Brian O'Driscoll and uh, Larder had, because again, Brian would have been a very young player, 21 years of age, not a huge amount of experience, wouldn't have been exposed to a, a defensive coach. And uh, Larder was geez, up in arms behind the scenes, like, is this fella good enough to be in the team? So, like, there is it's something you've got to be conscious of, especially when a team is under pressure. It's fine when teams are doing well and the overall package is brilliant. But when the heat comes on... Um, you, 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 you do tend to find in, in some scenarios where coaches, of course, they're going to try and do um, what's best, uh, but they're always conscious in the background that their head is on the block as well. Um, so, I mean, look, at the other, the flip side of that, there's no point in having Paul O'Connell and his expertise, and bear in mind, by his own admission, Paul is a nerd of the game in terms of he loves watching games and he sees things. So you'd be absolutely foolish to bring him in and not listen to what he has to say in terms of the combinations that he is looking for and the rationale behind, as Birch says, those conversations that you have at the start of a week when you're building up towards the game, the international the following Saturday, and you have a certain um, logic in your head. But you've got to listen to the rationale of the coaches and why they're, uh, they might be pushing for one fellow over another. And they are the type of things that you're looking for then in training during the week, who adapts best. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, but <clears throat> you welcome that dialogue. The worst case, and, and who knows, like, is this what happened in the end in the Joe Schmidt scenario? Um, was there enough dialogue from other coaches or was there um, sufficient input from coaches to, to to have an influence overall. Who knows? But uh, yeah. getting that balance right is huge. Right, right. We'll move on, lads. I, I want to talk a little bit um, about England Scotland this weekend. I I think, uh, and, and maybe I'm going to sound absolutely stupid next week when I say this. I think Scotland don't have a good chance of upsetting the Apple card against England this weekend. And I say that because. You know, if you look at the, the last couple of games, they, they got a victory against the French. They managed to beat Wales. They are definitely on an upward curve. They have some very exciting players when it all comes together. And I wonder if they could just put in a performance to catch Ian Cole this weekend. Yeah, all those possibilities are there. Um, you know, we've been sort of talking about Scotland, waiting for Scotland uh, to sort of burst out of the blocks. They, they, they seem to have a, a stronger squad every year. You go back to the Ireland-Scotland game, you might remember Eddie O'Sullivan had a, a rant in the panel at the end of it, Scotland, and he was right in many respects in terms of Scotland. They talked themselves up so much, uh, but yet they failed to deliver. And I think we're in this space again. Uh, I saw an interview there, Rory Sutherland, the Scotland loose head, when he was talking about England, oh, McEvanapola is out and Sinclair is out and Marler is out and our scrum has been brilliant and Peter de Villiers <laughs> is our scrum coach and we're going to take him on. Birch, you can imagine Eddie Jones sitting listening to this crap and saying, right, lads, Scotland are coming down here and they're going to push you all over the pitch, you know? Um, like, Scotland have to learn that, you know, talking about the game in the build-up and the pre-match is one thing. You've got to perform when the chips are down. 
And you have to say, go back to the World Cup, that opening game against Ireland, all the talk was Scotland, they had arrived, Ireland blew them away. Japan, I know Japan beat Ireland in the World Cup, but they beat Scotland in that crucial last pool game as well. Um, they just flatter to deceive on so many occasions. They haven't won in Twickenham since 1983. So on the law of logic, they're going to win there soon. Um, and they have the players. And, and like Cameron Redpath uh, declaring for Scotland over England is a significant one for me. But um, I think England, England are compromised. There's no doubt about that, but all the injuries they have. But uh, I'd give Scotland a chance, but I'd expect England to win. Yeah, and if Finn Russell's on form, I guess that's that's their best hope to, to unlock in that English defence, uh, Birch. They don't do themselves any favours, as Donald mentioned. You know, Stuart Hogg annually comes out and says, we're in this to win it. I think he did it before the World Cup as well, before they went home packing. But, you know, if they can put it together, if they can put it together, uh, they have a, a very exciting team. Yeah, they have. But uh, the worry for me is how they flopped against Ireland um, in November on the back of some really good form. Um, and, you know, they had probably closed their game in terms of their their ambition but I, I thought it was more suited to international rugby and Ireland blew them away to be honest they were so poor that day I just don't I just think when they come when it comes to the crunch yeah they're they're, they're capable of the the you know the, the once off but I just don't see that level of of consistency yet and have Maverick players Finn Russell you know is obviously gifted and um, they've they've found some forwards with a bit of more of an edge Tandy's improved their defense but yeah, look, we England would have to be very cold, I think, to to get caught. Uh, sure, it's possible, but England would have to be a little bit off. If England play to their level, um, and look, you could question England's form. The last game against France, they were looking to win it um, in the Autumn Cup, but I don't know. I always get the I get the impression at the moment that England just seem to be doing enough and they're capable of of, of raising their game. Um, a, a little bit more so I, I, I would be shocked if Scotland won but for sure it's possible Would you give him a chance Wes? A chance yeah I think England might get caught somewhere alright mm, Maybe against Scotland this weekend um, OK lads um, France as well before we leave it as well I want to mention them obviously they're on an upward trajectory Donald I mean they're huge improvements over the last couple of years they're building towards the next World Cup where they'll be on their home patch they have a really good coaching ticket they're missing Vakatawa which is big they're missing Entomac which is also big but like this is the time to test out the strength and depth in their squad. Yeah, it is. And that's where I think that autumn series will actually have, have come in as a huge benefit now. We know at the time there was a lot of uh, eyebrows raised at the fact that um, Galtier, they made this arrangement with the LNR, the league in France, whereby no player was going to play more than two matches. So as a consequence of that, they had a second stroke third team played against England in that final of the Nations Cup. And they brought them to to extra time, a dubious penalty at the end, uh, won it for England. So um, I think France, the, the big thing, that they, they're bringing through a different type of athlete. They're bringing through those young, younger players who not only have had success in, in Junior World Cups, but I think uh, have bought in more to the science of the modern game in terms of strength and, strength and conditioning, nutrition, um, obviously, they've bought into what Sean Edwards has, has brought to the table in terms of structured and organised defence. Um, Entomac is a last, but Jalabert, you must remember, Jalabert was brought in as a 19-year-old, played against Ireland uh, in, in the game in Paris two years ago now. So he's been on the scene for a long time. He's still only 21 or 22. Uh, so I think he has the capacity to, to make up for the loss of Entomac in the short term. The big one really is Vakatoa. I don't think they have another player of his uh, excitement and capability. Um, it'd be interesting to see their selection. They picked Arthur Vincent to cover, I think, for him in one of the autumn games. You know, he, again, I think, captained France in one of those under-20 World Cups. He's more steady. He doesn't have that kind of ability to break tackles and offload that uh, Vakatawa have. Uh, but you look at the... the, 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 the skill and the power they have on the wings, particularly, you know, Damien Penault is back. He was out injured for a long time and uh, he was outstanding. I mean, you put him in a back three with Teddy Tama um, and Dulan at full back and, you know, you have all kinds of exciting possibilities. Uh, had Vakatoa been in the middle of all of that, you'd say, oh my God, this, these, these fellas could be absolutely brilliant to watch. But, um, you know, I think they have the capacity to cope with the losses of those players. But there is more expectation on them now as well. 
and they do have three away matches in the championship. So, um, yeah, look, I, I, they're, they're up there for me. It's a toss of a coin for me between England and France as to who'll win the championship. So, uh, but I'm really seeing, I'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to, uh, can they continue to develop firstly? And I'm going to see them luckily in the flesh doing the game in the Aviva on, uh, is it a Sunday week? So really looking forward to seeing them and, and just how good these guys are. A nice handy start as well when they put 60 points past Italy at the weekend. Um, okay, the Lions to Australia, Bernard Jackman. A good idea, yes or no? I'm sceptical of it, to be honest, but it seems that they're doing everything in their power to to get it played this summer. Um, the South Africans don't seem to be that keen on on, on the option of, of going to Australia. I, I don't see it happening, to be honest. Donald is, is more of an expert on, on, on the Lions than me, but I, I don't see it being played in Australia, to be honest. Would you like to see it go there rather than have no test series at all this, this summer? Well, I, I actually prefer to postpone it a year. I know that's very complicated, but I'd love to see it played in South Africa um, in front of fans. Um, and even if we have to wait a while, I prefer to see that than it going ahead in Australia, to be honest. Um, Donald, I know Australian Rugby Union have said, look, we'll host it for you. Um, you know, we only want to cover our costs. Everything else is up to you, which is quite a, a generous offer, really, when you consider Australian rugby is not in the most healthy financial place of all time. Um, do you think it's a good uh, idea and do you think it's a, a feasible idea? Well, I think you talk about a generous offer. The Aussies won't do anything that's not of the benefit <laughs> to themselves. I think there's a, there's, there's a couple of... Uh, uh, I mean, the cynic in me says, look, they're looking to, to host the, the 20... Uh, 27 World Cup. They see this as a, a major way of winning votes from from other unions. Uh, I think when you when you get down to the nitty gritty, and the bottom line with all the colour and and the pageantry and all that about the Lions, uh, it's the financial aspect and the money making aspect that, that keeps the game in the Southern Hemisphere going. By going to Australia, I think you've massive logistical issues. Uh, you couldn't make the same amount of, of money out of it because you have to factor in the cost of, of hosting it and bringing teams to uh, um, to uh, Australia. There was a suggestion of bringing the provincial teams from South Africa down there as well. Uh, look, I, I just don't see it happening. Um, I like the, the ideal scenario is the tour is postponed for a year. You go down there with full crowds next year. But again, I don't see that happening because the individual unions over here They'll be prioritising their tours. Um, so, look, it's a mess, really. A decision has to be made soon, uh, but I don't see that Australian offer as an option, to be honest. Yeah, it does look increasingly like it was. Like, if it doesn't happen this year, it might not happen at all. And, and that's just the reality. I, like, I, I agree with the two lads that the logistics are a huge problem, but to be honest, I'd much rather see it played in front of 40,000 fans in Australia than in front of zero fans in South Africa if they were the two choices. There is a huge expat population from the five countries involved in Australia. Um, I don't think playing the test series is that problematic. I think the idea of flying in provincial teams is, is ridiculous. And with a two-week quarantine before you even play a game, is just not practical. That could happen. But I, I don't know. I mean, we haven't seen any rugby except the down south with, with crowds in a long time. And a three-test series on neutral ground with... With a full house, I mean, I'd watch it. Mm. Oh, we'd all watch it. The South Africans have actually said, uh, suggested that they swap, that the uh, Australians take this one and they'll take 2025. Um, but I, th that would be so lucrative to Australia in 2025. I can't see them accepting that. I mean, what do you think, Don? Yeah, no, no. Again, money will come into it yeah. there. And I think to be a great pity because we know South Africa, they are the world champions. Um, you could just see, I mean, we again, we, we spoke about that, uh, you know, the internal video and how good it was there the, the from the World Cup. You could just see Erasmus and the whole South African team coming together um, with the Lions coming in and what the Lions would mean going down there. I just don't think to be the same having it out in Australia. Plus the fact that no supporters from Britain or Ireland can go. There's only people who are out in Australia. Uh, it's not as if... Um, well, you could go if you were prepared to quarantine for two weeks. Oh, well, geez, we'd all be prepared to do that, I think. But um, I'm not so sure. The, the Aussies, I can't see them leaving in 30,000 visitors. I mean, they had one security guard in Perth got the, the um, got COVID last week and they closed all the place for, for five days, which is incredible when you think about it. One person. Uh, so you're talking about allowing 30,000 people to come in? Not a chance. 
even with yeah. a two months quarantine. Just finally then, Birch, um, Leone Nakarawa, we haven't spoken about him since he's uh, joined Ulster. Is it a good signing for Dan, do you think? And uh, at 32 years of age, he obviously still has a bit to offer, but is he the kind of signing that could just, I guess, invigorate the squad? Yeah, he's a, he's a world-class player, obviously come back from injury, um, so there's a bit of a risk on that point of view, but uh, he can, he's a game-changer. It's a great great replacement for for Kutsia, and obviously Kutsia could only play eight, so eight or six, whereas... He only can play um, second row as well, and and um, I, I'm back. <laughs> back. He's one of the best offloaders in the game, and um, it's a case of man managing him and uh, probably giving him a little bit of more more freedom than you would give a, a you know your your normal pro because um, he, they are different, and and I think he trains like Jane, but he plays like Tarzan, and um, that's better. That's better the other way. <laughs> so. Uh, no, I think it's um, he's an exciting, exciting addition, and looking for a good boost for Pro 14 and good boost for Ulster. I was the opposite. Yeah, I used to train like Tarzan and play like Jane. <laughs> no, you did everything like Jane. <laughs> oh, what did you say? Sorry, going back to to Dakarava, I mean, there isn't a, like he is a top like at his peak of his powers. Now he's been injured. He's he's really hasn't featured in the last twelve months. But at the peak of his powers, as an international quality second row. He was able to play in a sevens team and win a gold medal in, in, the, in, in the Olympics Rio. in yeah. sevens in Rio. I mean, just think, there is no other second row in the world could um, uh, make a Fiji, you know, would make a, a sevens team and be good enough to win a gold medal. The guy is a freak of nature. Uh, I was reading something Ron Nogara was talking about him in training where they just had to leave him off. You just couldn't put any shackles on this guy. Uh, and they learned in time and this is the key it's like when christian cullen came to munster and he'd make breaks and you know the other people weren't reading what was happening around them you only get the best out of nakarawa when the players around him understand what he's capable of and get into positions to support him and to be able to play off the the offloading game that he has now dan mcfarland had been involved in uh, in scottish rugby for a long time and would have seen nakarawa from his time there with glasgow so he knows what he's getting I think I agree with Bert. It's brilliant for the league, brilliant for Ulster, uh, and I think he could be he could transform the way they play. So uh, yeah, great signing. Super. Okay. All right, lads. Uh, we're just about done. Um, anybody think that Ireland won't win this weekend? Or are we all confident enough? We'll we'll just about get the job done. No negatives? Okay, no. all right. Silence is gold. Okay, great. Well, look, hopefully um, we'll be talking after one victory uh, this time next week as the Six Nations kicks into action this weekend. My thanks to Donald, uh, to Bernard and to Wes and for you for listening as well. Uh, enjoy the weekend.